Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this evening's episode of Memories of a Great Airline, as told by its people, Eastern Airlines. Our memories date back to the early, very early days of Eastern Airlines, when it was Pitcairn Aviation, founded by Harold Pitcairn, owner of a company manufacturing aircraft in Pennsylvania, receiving a government contract to carry the mail. Three years later, Pitcairn sold to Clement Keyes, and the name changed to Eastern Air Transport, because now the airline began carrying passengers up and down the east coast of America, along with the mail. From open cockpits to 19-seat Curtis Condors, to the Great Silver Fleet and the Golden Fleet, to the Whisper Jets and Whisper Liners, to the Airbus A300 and the Boeing 757, America's first all-glass cockpit, Eastern Airlines, was usually the first to advance in the airline industry. Aviation pioneers like number one and number two pilots, Gene Brown and Dick Merrill, were there leading the way 
and their stick-and-rudder aircraft to fully automatic landing systems. The airline led the way. If there was a speed record to be set in an airplane, chances were an eastern flight crew sat in its cockpit. One of the first airlines to serve meals on its flight in the condors to the delicious meals prepared in some of America's famous kitchens, including China, Crystal, and Silverware, full-course meal service. From galleys in the passenger cabin areas to beneath the cabin galleys of the L-1011, using elevators to deliver the meals, Eastern stayed ahead of its competitors. Early Eastern entertainment usually included playing cards and route description by the flight and cabin crews. In-flight movies of the L-1011, A-300, Boeing 747, DC-10s were offered on the long-haul Eastern routes. From fabric replacement and rift stitching to electronic replacement of radio and nav equipment to the boroscoping of an entire engine, internal but combustion engines of the early piston engine aircraft to the huge 50,000 pounds of thrust of the jet engines. Eastern provided the public with the industry's safest airplanes. All the history of this great airline was best described by the men and women who made up the workforce of an airline that became a legacy airline like no other. The stories you hear on these radio broadcasts will attempt to tell the history of this airline in the words of its people. Mr. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will present each week the history as told by the Eastern people. Usually, six to eight stories presented with the classic Eastern advertisements between each story. We want to include your story of Eastern that you remember. It will be read and you will be included in the credits. Just send your narrative to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's enealholland at yahoo.com. We'll record it to be included in one of our future episodes, and you will receive the credit. Now, sit back and enjoy tonight's episode. This next story comes from an interview that I did with Captain Hassan Calloway at the Sun and Fun Air Show back a few years ago. Hassan, while we were going down the flight line here at Sun and Fun, Eston Fuller told me, told you to be sure to tell me about the P-38 story. We've got time on this tape if you would like to tell us. Hassan, oh yes, that was a weird thing, and it was in Believe It or Not, Ripley's Believe It or Not. There are more facets in it than you can ever imagine. But in 1946, this happened. I was picking up airplanes from places like Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Augusta, Georgia, and other places where Eastern was buying military surplus aircraft, DC-3s and DC-4s. The company paid about 15% down, and they sent Bishop Simpson and some of the guys over to work on them. They were never ready when you, you got there. Eastern had three Stinson-reliant airplanes. I never got pushed back to reserve, but 
I got pushed back to the Stinson, getting the same DC-3 pay. George Griner, Captain George Griner and I were the ferry pilots. We would take it time and about. I would go over, get a DC-3, and take it to TransCanada or somewhere, and George would fly the Stinson back home, and then next week he would fly the DC-3, and I would fly the Stinson back home. One day I was picking up a DC-3. It was a gorgeous airplane configured inside in an executive air, as an executive airplane with olive drab paint outside. It had a big star on the outside, which meant it belonged to a general while in service. My contribution was to take $7,000 to get the airplane out of, out of Hawk. The company had already sent over about $700, so the airplane came out, came out of there for about $8,000. It had been over through there many times before and would come out with baskets of altimeters, clocks, and other stuff. One day, this guy came over to me and he said, I've got just the airplane for you. I asked him to tell me about it, and he said it was a P-38. I told him I needed one of those real bad. I mean, I could use one of the engines as the anchor if I had a boat. That's how bad I needed it. If I had an airport, I could have used a fuselage for a wind tee. He said he was serious and said they they had some nice ones in the pool. I told him I had no money, and he asked if I had uh, had $20 for a deposit. I told him yes, and he said that I could not refuse this airplane. It was brand new. One had only 27 hours on it and had been flown by Lockheed test pilots. The Air Corps, the Air Corps had flown the aircraft to Pine, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and put it in storage. It had 10,000, or correction, 1,056 gallons of gas in it. I got the manual out of the airplane, checked into a hotel, and read it. Then I flew back to Atlanta, commercial, and told George to take me back over to Pine Bluff in the Stinson. I had read the manual, and I gave myself a thorough 45-minute checkout in the cockpit, and then I flew it back to Atlanta. Uh, not knowing what to do with it, once I got to Atlanta, I put it in the eastern hangar. When I got there, Furman Stone came out and said, What in the hell is that airplane doing in the hangar? Whose is it? I told him it was mine, and he said, You can't keep it here. I said, You want to fly it, Furman? If you want to fly it? Furman said, Yeah. He got in, and I stood on the wing and gave him a checkout. He flew the airplane, and from then on, I didn't have any problem keeping the airplane in the eastern hangar. The Bendix Air Race was coming up around Labor Day in 1946, so I decided to try my luck in the race. The flight out was pretty interesting. I landed in Kansas City and spent the night. The next morning, there was an overcast at about 700 to 800 feet with the tops at about 20,000. So I climbed out and headed west, going on top around 25,000 feet. It was a beautiful day with the morning sun behind me. I was on top for an hour or so, and then the overcast ran out just east of Tuba City, which is at the east end of the Grand Canyon. 
there with that beautiful sky and that gorgeous canyon open below me, the temptation was just too great. I went down and dusted out the canyon. From there, I went over to Van Nuys, where they got me for speeding into the traffic pattern. They had a limit, which I didn't know as I went in at about 300 miles per hour, and I was supposed to have been down to no more than 240. I stayed there for about a week before the races began. While there, I ran into an old captain friend of mine by the name of Larry McGee. Larry had moved out to California, and he helped me get the airplane ready. When I ran the Bendix in 1946, I was an also-ran I knew I had bought the wrong airplane. I could, I should have bought a P-51 for probably the same price. After the race was over at Cleveland, the guy from Bendix, who had seen me in the Bendix race, came to me and said, you're, you're not doing so well at racing, and we're doing some experimenting with landing gears that we have, that we have, uh, that, that we would like to try out. Would you be interested? I told him I would, and, I signed on with Bendix and did some gear tests for them. I kept the airplane there for about a year and did pretty well with it. I put a couple of hundred hours on the airplane for them, I guess. I bought I brought the airplane back to Atlanta and I couldn't keep it in the hangar, so I kept it outside and it collected a lot of dust. I had a friend who ran an FBO in Peru, Indiana who called me and asked me what I was going to do with the P-38. I told him it was sitting behind the hangar collecting dust, so he asked if I could bring it up, and he would put it in condition to sell it for me. Well, I flew it up to Peru, and my friend and I got it ready to sell. I had forgotten about it, and time passed until one day, while I was flying a DC-4 sequence out of Atlanta to Boston, I was in Knoxville visiting my family when I heard on the news that Eastern had had a tragedy at Washington National Airport with a military airplane. Well, it never dawned on me. It just didn't ring a bell at all. Nothing to enlighten the thing up. Uh, I came back to Atlanta, changed clothes, and flew my trip. I went to Charlotte and then to Washington where I saw all this mess at the end of runway three. I didn't think further about it and went on to New York and then to Boston. Around 8 or 9 o'clock that night, I got a call from the commentator, Drew Pearson. Pearson says, is your name Captain Hassan Calloway? I said, yes. He said, did you own a P-38? I told him, yes, I had owned one. He was very sarcastic and said, did you know, Captain, that you're company had a very bad accident down in Washington yesterday, November 1st, 1949. A Douglas DC-4, November 88727, uh, was the airplane number. I told him that I didn't, I did not, I did know about it, and then he asked what my racing number was. I told him that it was number 48. Why do you ask? He said, well, Captain, how do you account for the fact that when they pull this airplane out of the swamp up there in D.C., it has your name all over it? It did indeed have my name 
Hassan Calloway, Eastern Airlines, Atlanta, Georgia, written right on the nose of the airplane. I told him I didn't know, but for him to call me back in about an hour, I then called Walter and asked him how we were financially. He told me that we were all right and that the airplane had been sold to a Bolivian pilot who had bought the P-38, a P-63, and some other airplane. George Ray was the captain of the Eastern DC-4, and George was one day ahead of me on the sequence, flight sequence. How ironic it would have been if it had happened a day earlier and I was the captain. I had been knocked out of the sky by my own airplane. Fortunately for me, it didn't happen. All 55 people aboard the airplane were killed. Half the airplane crashed at National Airport, and the rest fell into the swamp right at the threshold of Runway 3. The pilot of the P-38 didn't hit the DC-4 head-on, but must have pulled it up pulled it up at the last minute and mushed through it, hitting it at just about the loading door. The airplane actually broke and fell into two pieces. The Bolivian, the Bolivian pilot went in flat in the P-38 and was seriously injured, but actually lived through that accident. The irony of this was that it was about the time that the tower started to record tape messages from the pilots. A strange, a strange thing happened to this tape. It was lost. Eastern was completely absolved of the accident. You know how you go up the river north at Washington, then turn northwest and then back to the northeast to land on runway three? Well, this guy was out over Arlington in the P-38, and he was buzzing the airport. That's what he was doing when he struck the eastern airplane. This actually got into Ripley's Believe It or Not. I don't know the issue, but I saw it under some title like, Can You Imagine This? or Can You Top This? or something like that. I believe this all happened November 1st. 1949. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Let's continue our saga of Eastern Airlines during World War II. This will be the third and final part of this three-part series. For anyone assigned to the MTD, last were few, the work hard, and the hours long. A 15 or 16 hour day was the norm, not the exception. The flight crews didn't pull duty to that extent, but they had their own brand of fatigue and tension. No pilot who ever flew the Natal Ascension leg can ever forget the difficulties of finding a dot in the middle of the ocean with no other land within 700 miles and the nearest alternate landing strip at least a thousand miles away. Navigation was celestial and by dead reckoning. 
plus, on more than one occasion, the power of prayer. A mistake of a couple of degrees, Meniflite would miss Ascension and make a ditching inevitable. But even this strain was no worse than over the rest of the route where a forced landing gave one a choice between the ocean and the jungle. But there were compensations. The chief one being the knowledge that MTD was not only a way to help win the war, was infinitely better than getting shot at. Plus the discovery so many provincially smug Americans had made when exposed to life and other than a prosperous democracy. There is a human urge for dignity and pride, no matter how primitive or uneducated a man may be. The MTD contingent met such people and gave them dignity through jobs. The station managers, whose chief duty was to serve as liaison men between the airline and the army, hired South American natives for about 30 cents a day. To many of them, the pay was secondary to the satisfaction of working around airplanes. It gave them a sense of responsibility and importance they had never known before and quite possibly would never know again. Wooten remembers one tall, dark-skinned native who seemed lackadaisical until the station manager gave him a title, Jeffy dos Los Lavatorios. From then on, he literally strutted through his chores, many although they were. His translated title was Supervisor of Lavatories, which meant that like David Rickenbacker, he was cleaning the honey buckets. At Borkun Field, a young Puerto Rican was assigned the task of waking up the flight crews overnighting in the barracks. Some of them, worn out by hours of tough flying, would have slept through a major earthquake. The youngster would shine a flashlight in their faces and shake them until they opened their eyes, but this often proved inadequate. A weary pilot would fall back to sleep after the boy left and then would blame him for almost missing his flight. A few such scoldings forced him to take drastic action. He would draw up a list of those to be awakened and the next morning and take it with him when he made his before-dawn rounds. The minute a pilot stirred into semi-consciousness, the boy would deliver the warningly sentence he had memorized. Signed a paper. The flashlight stayed on until his bleary-eyed man had signed next to his name, and if he went back to sleep, the alarm clock was in the clear of any negligence. Eastern C-46s hauled anything that could be fitted into a commando's carinous, dirigible-shaped hulk, including, on one occasion, a disassembled Army observation plane. The cargo ranged from a $750,000 cash payroll to Madison, vaccine, and blood plasma. The story of World War II was written as MTD manifest. Cryptograph machines, spare engines, ammunition, guns, food, mail, soap, and technical specialists whose presence was needed in some combat zone in a hurry. One flight carried railroad engineers bound for Iran, and another had to board sappers, men trained to detect landmines. The return flights didn't come back empty. They hauled mica and quartz crystals from Brazil to the U.S. when a shortage of these critical materials threatened halt production of radio and radar tubes. They flew tons of crude rubber, captured German equipment to be tested and evaluated by U.S. ordnance experts, and Army ferry pilots going back to pick up more planes. The latter often performed their ferrying operations over Eastern's MTD route, but their safety record was alarming. They were young and inexperienced with very little instrument training. 
and for a time, scores of them were victims of violent and usually unexpected tropical storms they were ill-equipped to handle. Army officials discussed the problem with MTD personnel, and the result was the use of Eastern's planes as weather ships. Many southbound flights began carrying Army weather observers, radioing their first-hand en-route weather information back to ferry bases. If there was no Army observer aboard, EAL's own radio operators provided weather data to military aircraft in the area, and if a ferry pilot needed an up-to-date report, he could call the nearest eastern plane. In only two weeks after the program went into effect, the ferry accident rate dropped dramatically and stayed low for the duration of ferry operations over the route. Impressed, the Army also contracted with Eastern to operate a school in Atlanta for military pilots, navigators, and flight mechanics. Nearly 1,200 men went through the school, which included instrument and transitional training for pilots. A subsequent on-the-job training program qualified almost 800 pilots to fly heavy cargo planes. Eastern's wartime educational assignments involved one unusual task, giving additional training to none other than Pan American's veteran crews. One of the instructors was an EAL Captain Ernie Burton, now a highly successful home builder in Miami and the Washington area, who gives a logical explanation of why it was necessary to work with men who had far more ocean flying experience than any Eastern pilot. The trouble, Burton says, was that Pan Am had been operating mostly big flying boats, which always had to take off or land in daylight. Nothing was more dangerous than moving a seaplane in water at night where you might never see a half-submerged log. The Pan Am guys were damn good, but few of them had done much flying, night flying, and for the very reason they hadn't had a great deal of instrument experience. When the war came and Pan Am began operating its own military cargo, cargo missions with land planes, we had to teach their crews a few things in operational areas with which they were unfamiliar. It was no reflection on Pan Am, just a fact of life they had to face. More than the MTD went to war from Eastern, of course. By 1944, there were more than 800 employees in uniform, not including the Military Transport Division. The first gold star went up in memory of Roger Owen, 27, a former reservations clerk in New York who was killed in combat while with the Royal Canadian Air Force. By the end of the war, EAL's gold stars totaled 42. worship the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. Call Eastern or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Now let's continue on with part two of our article, Invisible Sky Highways. 
These magnets draw planes through thickest weather to safe landings at distant airports. They provide the one indispensable factor in modern blind flight. Radio directional beacons are spaced every 200 miles along the airways. 55 of them send out their signals day and night, forming invisible highways in the sky. Their average useful range is 100 miles, so that transport planes are never out of touch with one. Apart from the role they play as the greatest of navigational aids, these aerial sentinels present an interesting study in radio engineering. Unlike the visible beacons, which revolve to send their light in all directions, radio beacons transmit their guiding signals along a definite course. By means of extreme shortwave transmission, which prevents them from being broadcast to every compass point, these signals form a straight, narrow path down which the pilot may steer his plane to port. If there are four airways emanating from the beacon site, four sets of signals may be transmitted spreading out like the spokes of a giant wheel sent any direction desired, actually two signals right along each course. The Morse code letter A, dot dash, directs slightly to the left of the center line, which marks the course as an approach the beacon. The region where the signal is heard is called the A sector. To the right, the signal is the Morse N, dash dot, and known as the N sector. When flying exactly between the two, the pilot hears a long sustained dash or the Morse code letter T caused by a merging of the two signals. When the A or the N predominates in his earphones, the pilot knows he is to one side or the other of his proper course and he immediately corrects his direction. The Morse T that marks the path the plane must fly is the own course signal, so he will know to which beacon he is flying. The signals interrupt periodically every few seconds when the station characteristic or call letters, also in Morse, flash to the ether. At longer intervals, complete airway weather reports for his route broadcast so that he may know just what conditions lay ahead, especially at the airport he is seeking. All this the pilot hears through his radio receiver as he flies blind high above the earth. To interpret and coordinate these different signals, and at the same time to keep flying his, his plane straight and on an even keel when there is no horizon visible by which to orient his position, here is the test every transport pilot must meet. Skill in riding the beam, however, is only half the requirement. When he arrives over his airport, the beacon signals suddenly die out altogether. This phenomenon, particular, peculiar to every radio beacon, is a zone of silence. All the pilot has to do now is land, but any one of them will tell you that is plenty. He must maneuver his plane in, posi in position, start his long glide into the wind, and set the ship down on the proper runway, even though fog may extend far below him. All this within a hundred feet of the ground. With the help of radio, science has made it possible to land safely without seeing the ground until the wheels of the plane are rolling to a stop. Marker beacons, which send out sharp, short-range vertical signals from the boundary or at a definite distance from the field, help to localize the airport for the pilot. Thus, he knows just how far he is from the runway as he glides in for the landing. In addition, at the New York airport, the Department of Commerce has successfully worked out the first curved beam. This in itself represents almost as great an aid to blind flight as the first radio beacon. It is not really a curved beam, but rather a signal emanating at an angle to the runway, 
that angles marking the normal gliding path of the plane. Whereas the directional beacons proper and the marker beacons are received audibly, as a rule, this signal requires a visual receiver. This resembles a clock, the hands of which are loose in the dial. Vertical and horizontal lines are set in the face to form a cross. The pilot's problem is to make the two floating hands conform exactly to the position of the cross. When he has done so, the vertical hand indicates to him that his plane is lined with the runway, heading for a smooth landing. The horizontal needle, when flush with the crossbar, shows the plane to be flying in at exactly the right angle to reach the head of the runway. If this needle is above the horizontal, the plane will come in too high, above the field, or overshoot. If the hand is below the line, he will undershoot and not reach the field. He must listen for his marker beacons, watch the two wavery needle points on the dial, correcting for every variation, keep his plane on an even keel, and his engines tuned and ready for a final burst that will level him off for a perfect three-point landing. Blind landings are still the exception rather than the rule, but with the increasing demands of trade, pilots see the day not far off when they will be asked to take off in bad weather, fly through it, and land on airports they cannot see. Zero ceiling, zero visibility will present no more of a threat than a passing summer shower. Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. Likewise, for many years, opponents of aviation asserted, you can't beat the weather. Now, however, airline pilots are proving they can. They are doing it. Another lesser sound supplements the roar of engines, the low, persistent whine of the on-course signal, symbolizing to the blind flyer his own particular achievement. The art of riding the beam. Moreover, as the beta propellers heldered man's adventure into the sky, so the invisible signals of the radio beacon mark the conquest of fog, our latest victory in our battle with the elements. Here's an interesting story we haven't told before. It's from the book, The Wings of Many. The story is a passenger leaps to death from Eastern Air Transport. The date was exactly 3-3 of 33. In the first part, we're going to learn about the story, about the passenger, how it occurred. In the second part of the story, we'll learn about the men that were involved in the search and in their later careers in the airline industry. 
Something just happened on my plane that I've never heard of before, breathlessly reported arriving Eastern Air Transport pilot George T. Pomeroy to the manager of the Charleston, South Carolina airport, T.P. Ball, and I'll bet you haven't either. His bet was safe. Perhaps no other U.S. airline pilot before or after has been through an experience exactly like this. Certainly it was a first for EAT on that March 3rd of 1933, as pilot Pomeroy prepared for his approach to the scheduled landing at Charleston en route Miami to Newark. A passenger had just jumped out of the cabin door at an altitude of about 600 feet, some 30 miles south of the airport. The Trimotor Stinson, Model U, was one acquired by EAT in the purchase of the Ludington line a few weeks earlier and had 10 window seats with the aisle down the middle, the cabin door in the right rear, and a cruise speed of 110 miles per hour. The cabin boasted no flight attendant and the pilot boasted no co-pilot. The title of captain on domestic airlines has yet to come into use. The tra tragedy happened about noon as passengers were still eating box lunches handed them as they had reboarded after a refueling stop at Jacksonville. Charleston police authorities were notified and the flight de delayed while the pilot and the remaining six passengers were questioned. One passenger in a rear seat stated that he had heard something behind him and turned just in time to see a passenger's head disappear below the seal of the partially open cabin door before the wind pushed it shut. No passenger doors were locked shut in those early days. Pilot Pomeroy described the locale of the jump as near the Seaboard Railroad Bridge near the Edisto River, also near the tiny village of Adams Run, a remote area consisting mostly of tidal water and boggy swamps. Airport ma manager Ball, who also operated the Hawthorne Flying Service at Charleston, and his 20-year-old 20-year employee Beverly E. Bevo Howard, cranked up two Waco F biplanes, one equipped with floats and took off on an aerial search for the body. A Jacksonville sportsman pilot, W.B. Lamb, in Charleston for a visit, joined in the search with his own plane, also a Waco F, accompanied by Andrew S. McCready, Eastern Station Manager at Charleston. Results were negative on that first day's search. When the newspaper story appeared next morning, groups of ground search parties joined, both official and volunteer, but the difficult terrain slowed their efforts. Mud covering much of, the, much of the area could not support an adult's weight. They offered a $50 reward for the person locating the body, a tidy sum in those depression days. The victim was, and presumed suicide was Merrill B. King, a 45-year-old paper manufacturer from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and president of the Rex Paper Company there. He was returning home via New York following a business trip to Havana. During the intermediate stop at Jacksonville, he had complained to other passengers of a severe headache and had mentioned recent business reverses. His brother-in-law from Kalamazoo arrived the next day to coordinate and assist in the search and announced the new hour reward of $200. The Kalamazoo American Legion Post wired the Charleston County Service Officer representing veterans of the World War I that King was an ex-serviceman who was active in American Legion affairs and this brought out many local legionnaires as volunteer searches. A force of seaboard railroad workers also joined in, concentrating on and near the railroad right-of-way. Because of negative results the second day, neither the police nor the insurance adjusters were quite ready to accept the missing passenger as a suicide.
He had heavy insurance coverage. They quizzed EAT Station Manager McCready. Could he have worn a parachute under his coat, they asked. Could he have hidden in the rear compartment or clung to some external projection of the plane, such as a tail wheel or horizontal stabilizer rigging until low enough to drop off safely just before landing? Andy McCready was patient, but the questions continued. He quizzed station agent Lining Palmer and me apart from the station manager. A small part I recall handling as an employee of only four months' experience with EAT was sending a teletype message to the EAT operation manager, Carl H. Dolan, in Atlanta, asking when and where the insurance adjusters could personally inspect that particular Stinson trimotor. It was not regularly assigned to the run through Charleston, having been operated as a limit-stop extra section of the usual Curtis Condor that day only. The fourth day, Pilot Pomeroy returned to Charleston with the AT's Jacksonville-based Florida superintendent, A.P. Kerr, to participate in the search, and they flew back and forth over the immediate and expanded area for five hours. One bizarre aspect came in, crept in. Two woodsmen, together reporting seeing a stranger with a mustache and wearing a fur coat, walking the railroad bridge near the search area. The press questioned the missing passenger's brother-in-law on this. He explained that King normally was clean-shaven, but he did own a fur coat. The call to Kalamazoo disclosed that Mr. King had not taken his fur coat to Havana, but instead wore a light gray cloth overcoat and was also wearing both a diamond ring and a white gold watch with his initials on the back. After the sixth day, they halted the search, but the reward offer still held. Many months later, sportsman hunters in that area stumbled across the pitifully sparse remains, consisting mostly of a few bleached bones, perhaps scattered by small animals, clothing tatters, and the initial watch. So that's the story of the passenger that jumped out of the plane to his death. In the second part, we'll hear more about the men that participated in that search. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. This story is called um, People Working Together as a Team by Willie Podesta Young. In the fall of 1957, I didn't return to college because, foolishly, I didn't feel the need of continuing my education. At that time, Blaw Knox, a Pittsburgh-based company that manufactured construction equipment and steel structures, built a plant in my hometown of Mattoon, Illinois. It wasn't unusual for our family to entertain many of the new arrivals, and the Blaw Knox people were no exception. I soon became friends with Captain Paul Duke, a Blahnox pilot, and his wife Dolores, and reveled in the stories Paul told of the airlines. At the invitation of the Dukes and with permission from the president of, of Blahnox, I flew to Pittsburgh to fill an empty seat. During that week, a seat was available to New York. While the Blahnox executives conducted business, Captain Duke took me a t on a tour of, the, of Newark, New Jersey. Being from a small town in the Midwest, this was truly the big time, 
and I wanted to become part of this exciting industry. It was during my visit that I told Captain Duke that I wanted to to be a stewardess, and he said, which airline? I looked up and saw a sign that said, fly Eastern Airlines, and without hesitation, I replied, Eastern. We inquired at the airport counter about an application, and after checking to see if there were any corn stalks caught between my toes, the agent suggested that we go to 10 Rockefeller Plaza where interviews were being conducted. Within three hours remaining before my scheduled return flight to Pittsburgh, we boarded the subway, and my life with Eastern was about to begin. After filling out my application, I was asked to wait and take a written test. Captain Duke explained that this wasn't possible as we were scheduled to return to Pittsburgh in an hour, and it was back to the subway to New York. Because I couldn't take the test, I never dreamed I would hear from Eastern. But within a week, a letter, a hotel voucher, and a ticket authorization arrived for an interview in Miami. I remember walking into the conference room and thanking the interviewer, Lou Devane, for the ticket and the opportunity to be interviewed. He looked at me and said, congratulations and welcome to Eastern Airlines. Excited? You bet. I became part of the December 1957 class. Later, I read the book From the Captain to the Colonel and found an interest, it interesting that Lou was known for hiring girls with hips. I trained at Eastern's Miami Springs Villa for five weeks, and after graduating, I was given 10-day leave because I wasn't even 21. My first trip was on a 60-passenger Connie with the final destination of Montreal. The weather in Canada on January 21, 1958 was, shall we say, marginal. Several delays and six stops later, we, can we canceled in New York. To say I was exhausted and ready for bed is a gross understatement. Even the fact that the room was really small didn't keep me from sleeping the entire layover. We used to say the rooms at the Paramount were so small you slept with your head in the closet and your feet in the bathroom. During golden years, it was not unusual to be able to hold a bid after a few months. On graduation day, I had the dubious distinction of being the last on the seniority list. Two months later, I held a bid. I flew many Chicago and St. Louis trips in the early days, and we had a tendency to fly the same trip for many months. When Minneapolis-St. Paul became an Eastern designation, it became a favorite layover city. Those were also the days that the crews stayed together, and not only did we work well together, but we developed lasting friendships. Occasionally, I was asked to fly publicity trips for Eastern. A particular favorite was an open house at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Captain Dick Merrill headed that crew. His stories were always wonderful, and I feel honored to have flown with the aviation legend. For two years, I was privileged to fly with the Los Angeles Dodgers when the players returned to L.A. after spring training. On a return trip to Vero Beach, we stopped in various cities to pick up the minor league players. I always enjoyed flying the Super G Constellation. This was a friendly airplane, and being left-handed, I liked the galley. During my career, it was not unusual to see many of the same travelers. 
We pulled our own tickets, which gave us the opportunity, if interested, to learn the passenger names. Many times people would gather in different areas of the airplane, either to talk or play bridge. Those were also the days when pilots were allowed to spend time in the cabin, meeting and greeting our customers. It was also an era when children experienced the thrill of sitting in the captain's seat. People made flights memorable, and in those days, time was available to sit and talk with them. On the Washington to New York shuttle, I met many very interesting people from all walks of life. It was wonderful having Congressman William Springer from my home district in Illinois board and call me by name, telling his companion, I crowned Willie when she was the centennial queen. How can I ever forget November 22, 1963? My bid took me on a Boeing 727 from Miami to Philadelphia with stops in Dallas and Miami. This trip had a two-hour Dallas layover, giving us time to go into the Love Field terminal for ice cream. On this day, several men were around our plane doing things. I asked the gentleman who seemed to be in charge, what's going on? So it happened, he was the director of advanced communications for the White House and Air Force One. President Kennedy was arriving at that gate the following day and their job was to see that 18 phone lines were ready so that they could be connected to Air Force One upon arrival. What transpired the following day stunned the nation. Our crew heard the news in Philadelphia that President Kennedy had been shot and killed. There are many things that come to mind when I look back on my days with Eastern Airlines. Most of all, I remember people working together to make our airline America's favorite way to fly. We were, prof we were professional and considered it an honor and a privilege to be part of Captain Eddie's airline. After all these years, I still retain friendships from my flying days. Many of us were extremely fortunate that Eastern allowed us to continue our association after our flying days ended. Like many other airlines, we have an alumni association. Our Ours is called Silver Liners. Fortunately, Eastern saw the value of using people in our organization to promote the airline. I am one of 12 women who are particularly fortunate to have been presidents of this international organization while Eastern was still flying. My Eastern years were and continue to be a most important part of my adult life. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Well, it's been another great hour sharing the stories of Eastern Airlines as told by its people. Linda and Harry Lindquist and I have had the pleasure of being the radio voice during tonight's broadcast and hope you will join us again next week for another hour of Eastern history. Remember, we want you to be part of the Eastern story. All you need to do is email us a memory of or experience you remember about Eastern, and we'll include it as part of these broadcasts. 
You even might want to tell the story in your own voice, and we'll put it on the air. It's really easy to do. Most computers have a voice recorder and record using the MP3 or WAV format. All you need to do is turn it on, start talking, telling your story. It will save in the MP3 or WAV format that can be emailed to us. You can send it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. We'll do the rest. We hope you will tell your Eastern friends about these Monday evening broadcasts at 8 p.m. And on behalf of Linda, Harry, and me, Neil Holland, we say good night, and we hope you have a great week. Good night, Eastern family.